Hello and welcome. My name is Raj Basord and I'm a consultant psychiatrist based in London. And I'm delighted to be joined uh, now by Omni Khan, who's written a very interesting book called The Curious Kinks, S&M in the Socio-Legal Imaginary. And uh, this book is published by the University of Toronto Press. And Omni Khan is an associate professor in the Department of Law and Legal Studies at Carleton University. Now, this is a fascinating book exploring, exploring various aspects of sadomasochism. Um, it's kind of difficult to summarize exactly what it's about. It's about some famous legal cases uh, where, where S&M features, but it's also about S&M in the popular imagination and in popular culture. But S&M is kind of in the news at the moment, Amni, because of this book, Fifty Shades of Grey. What are your thoughts about the book and its portrayal of an S&M? Um, Fifty Shades of Grey, I think, is a really exciting intervention into the popular imaginary. Um, it also is a great example of how popular culture can be both transgressive and at the same time reinforce heteronormativity, let's say. So in my view, Fifty Shades um, has opened up sexual possibilities for so many people. One of the really interesting things about uh, its effect is that sex toys uh, sales have rocketed since the since the phenomena of this book. Um, and we see women, there are cases of women feeling more entitled to ask for particular kinds of sexual experiences from their lovers based on the book. So I think in many ways it's positive, but on the other hand, I think it buys some of its SM acceptability from transferring stigmatization to more hardcore kinds of SM relationships. Uh, relationships that have 24-7 um, dynamics where people are doing SM all the time. Um, and it also reinforces the idea that SM is um, a product of childhood trauma and that that's a bad thing. Uh, so we see kind of two different kinds of messages from the book that on the one hand opens up possibilities, on, on the other hand reinforces some uh, negative aspects of SM and really contains it in um, a very conventional romantic setting and so it leaves out people who enjoy SM let's say with um, in group sex scenarios or um, same-sex scenarios. What about this aspect of S&M in popular culture that you mentioned in the book which is this notion of S&M as a slippery slope which is that it can't be stable people um, end up um, uh, slipping down a slippery slope and it gets worse and worse and ends in a very bad place. Yeah, that's a, a recurring message that we see in a lot of um, pop culture. I mean, it's one of the reasons why Fifty Shades is nice, because they don't end up kind of moving towards mutual self-destruction. But a lot, of, um, a lot of films, like Nine and a Half Weeks is one of the early classic films, shows SM as being escalating. It's a little, you know, it's a little bit exciting, and people go down this path, but suddenly, you know, a little bondage turns into extreme violence and even murder. Um, and so there's a sense in popular culture, and it's reinforced, unfortunately, in other uh, discourses, like some psychiatric discourses, that says SM is dangerous because it's addictive and it's inherently escalating. And also there's this notion that there must be something wrong with people who indulge in this activity, that it's, it's psychopathologized in some way. Yes, so that's, that's, um, that's an unfortunate assumption that gets reinforced in, in many different guises and psychiatry itself I think um, and I'm now speaking specifically about the DSM uh, the Diagnostic Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders which is used primarily in the US and Canada uh, unfortunately reinforces the idea that if you're interested in sadism and masochism then there's something deviant about you and possibly pathological uh, and that has um, really uh, problematic effects on your livelihood, um, your job can be put at risk, uh, you can uh, be criminalized because of it and your custody of your children can also get put at risk um, because of this pathologization of people who are interested in S&M. You don't agree that it should be pathologized? No, um, no I don't and I <laughs> I think um, I think science is on my side as well as kind of sexual liberation. Um, but there's there's really good 
empirical work that has looked at people who engage in SM and it reveals that people who do SM aren't any more likely to be dysfunctional or abusive um, or uh, experience distress than people who don't. Um, but there's an assumption, there's a, a negative assumption, I think, that that because it's kind of deviant from the norm, it deviates from the norm, that there must be something wrong. Um, and at, at the very least, it's not ideal. And Fifty Shades, for example, actually reinforces that um, because uh, the main character, Christian Grey, um, he he is seen as someone who has suffered serious childhood trauma, and that's why his sexuality is um, is deviant. Uh, whereas the his girlfriend, ultimately his wife, um, she's someone who only is drawn to mild kinkiness, and that is I think that is definitely gaining acceptability. Kind of mild. A uh, little tiny bit of, you know, maybe wearing a blindfold to bed, that I think is gaining acceptability. But if it's a core part of who you are, I think there's still, um, there's still an assumption that there's some kind of mental disorder happening there, something unfortunate. So you mentioned wearing a blindfold to bed. Let's just talk a little bit about the spectrum of different things we're talking about with sure. sadomasochism. Um, because there's a milder end at one end, obviously, and um, there's a wide spectrum of things that are going on when, when people are referring to it. Could you say something about that? Yeah, I mean, so it can range from, yeah, just, I mean, it can range from what we wouldn't even call SM, but early sexologists would put it on the spectrum. So if you're wrestling with your lover, um, or if you're giving each other a hickey even, um, that can be put on kind of the mildest level of SM um, to the most extreme, which would be... Um, and I, I mean, I use extreme kind of knowing that this is a subjective word. One person's extreme will be another person's mild. But from a mainstream perspective, let's say breath play, where you're actually restricting your air coming in and out um, as part of your sexuality, as part of your kink, as part of increasing the high of uh, your arousal, which does carry risks, um, of course. Uh, that would be um, really at the other end. And that's more often when we'll see the law coming in and and saying you're not allowed to do that, that's not in the public interest and even if you're consenting it's still too harmful and we want to stop you. So could you say something more about the, the kind of behaviors that the law seems to be concerned about or the obscenity um, laws are concerned about? Sure, yeah. So it's very interesting if we if we just start with the obscenity side um, we find that the law, you know, in general, is is more tolerant of different kinds of sexual representations. There's, you know, there's an idea that there should be freedom of speech, including sexual speech. Um, but where the law wants to come in and and censor is when the lawgivers uh, perceive the por pornographic text to be harmful. And unfortunately, SM often gets gets categorized as harmful because it involves power play, it involves bondage, it can involve um, scenes that look like sexual assault um, to the viewer. Um, and so what we find with obscenity cases is that SM gets m labeled as harmful without any, of course, any empirical evidence to show that watching um, a hardcore uh, and even violent pornography will cause um, harm or particular kinds of attitudinal change. Uh, but the law will say that is harmful, and so we're not interfering on a moral basis, we're interfering on a harms basis, which is completely acceptable in a liberal society. Um, and so that's where the law tends to justify its interference with um, SM pornography and SM erotica. Um, that, and for at least in Canada, and I think it's true in the US too, um, has changed. The internet has made it basically impossible to uh, censor SM pornography. So for the most part, that that those kinds of cases that were happening a lot in the 80s uh, are less common. What we find more in Canada is censorship through border control. And so we have Canada Customs interfering with certain kinds of shipments to bookstores, and usually it's gay SM. So gay SM, I think, gets pinpointed as particularly um, harmful to, I think, a homophobic imaginary where it's seen as more disruptive or something. And we find that in obscenity cases, and we also um, find that in practice. When SM is practiced 
uh, by gay men in particular, it is often seen as more dangerous and harmful. You review many fascinating legal cases um, uh, in many different parts of the world yeah. uh, re relating to this subject. I get a sense from the book, and I could be wrong, that you are writing about it as if there's a sense of injustice in the way the law covers this. Yes, no, that's right. I mean, it's it's interesting to to sort of think through my own position um, and uh, you know subjectivity versus objectivity. But I mean, I I think that I, I think it's true, and I think I I I take that position in the book that it's it's unjust and um, and I mean deeply wrong to to criminalize people and to incarcerate them for engaging in um, consensual behavior, um, and we find that. So the famous case uh, in England, and it's a really important case because it's used um, not just in England but also in Canada as um, as persuasive, is the R.V. Brown case that I, I'm sure many people are familiar with because it's so um, famous. Um, it's an old case, right? It's from the early 1990s, and I don't think it would be uh, decided the same way today. But unfortunately, it hasn't been overturned, which means it still has precedent value. Um, and in that case, we had a, a group of gay men who were engaging in entirely consensual activities that didn't um, cause any harm, any, they didn't need medical interventions, um, and yet some of those men were incarcerated for three years. Uh, and to me, that is, you know, is a deep injustice. And, um, and, and the fact that that case continues to be cited with approval, I mean, just recently in Canada, to me is, is really uh, shows the extent to which um, kind of SM-phobia uh, can, can cl you know, cloud, I think, what would be a more legal, rational perspective, which is that we should interfere only when, um, when harm is shown. So let's just, I'm going to read a, a couple of paragraphs from your book because it is a fascinating description of that case, which is easy sure. to forget about. This is R.V. Brown, 1993, and I'm on page 226 of the book. Um, you say, the case started in 1987 when the Obscene Publication Squad, a special unit in the British police, came upon a homemade video that portrayed same-sex S&M activities. The police claimed later, after a protracted and costly investigation, that they believed the submissives were not consenting and that they had not merely seized evidence of violent assault, but had in their possession genuine snuff films. A murder investigation was initiated, which was dubbed Operation Spanner. After interviewing hundreds of people, after digging up a private garden in search of corpses, after months and millions of pounds spent, the police learned that none of the men in the video had been murdered. None of them had suffered injuries requiring medical attention, and all had been willing participants. This did not deter the police from eventually laying charges against 16 men with various assault-related offences. Now, you go on a bit about what happened to these men, then yeah. one of the concluding comments is, four years later, the European Court of Human Rights affirmed this British decision, stating that a state is entitled to regulate private activity when issues of health, safety, and morality are involved. Yes. But that seems crucial. Uh, in other words, this has wide repercussions for the rest of us in the way we lead our lives. Yes, absolutely. Um, it's, um, I mean, it's really interesting to see how morality gets defended as a viable legal um, arena that can be regulated by the state. Um, so I think, I mean, to be fair, uh, I think that that decision has in some ways been, um, in, the, in the British case law, has been modified in some of the subsequent cases um, where, for example, um, when that case was used to, to criminalize a, the a heterosexual couple, um, the prison sentence was suspended, so he wasn't actually incarcerated. So you can see a, a kind of different, um, a less kind of hysterical reaction to to it. Um, but it still stands as good law, um, and so I think it does leave us all vulnerable. And and like I said, gets used to justify other kinds of criminalizations in other jurisdictions. Um, the the case that I think is really exciting in England that I cite at the end of that chapter is the civil case uh, w between Max Mosley and News of the World. Um, and in that case. If you read the decision carefully, it's interesting because I read the judge, um, Justice Edie, as trying to kind of uh, 
carefully walk around that decision to show how it does not apply in this case. Okay, so let me just back up and give people the, the facts of that case. So in that case, Max Mosley, um, who's a high-profile person because of his, um, because he led the F1 um, racing organization, um, he was, uh, his privacy was kind of infiltrated when he ha had a, SM interaction with five sex workers um, and News of the World posted uh, very sensationalist um, headlines about how he was involved in a sick Nazi orgy. Um, and one of the things News of the World argued in their civil case, so he, he, made, he sued them for breach of privacy um, along with a couple of other uh, torts. And one of the things News of the World said was, well, based on the R.V. Brown decision, he's actually committing a crime because he's an accessory to assault upon his own body. He's allowing the sex workers to spank his bottom, and we can see that his bottom is getting red, which is an interference of his bodily health. And so the he is actually um, committing a crime. So we, we're justified in, you know, writing this news, news story because the public has a right to know that he's engaged in these criminal activities. And um, the judge rejected that. And I think so, I, and I think rightly rejected that and, and talked about how um, the SM subculture is its own thing and that we can't, um, we can't impose our own moral views on um, on the kinds of sexuality that other people enjoy, um, so we see the R.V. Brown case. So this that case was 2008. You know, being cited a long time afterwards as as a way to try and justify a particular kind of interference with privacy. But thankfully, and this is where I think we're moving to a better place, um, it was rejected by by the judge. So it's a it's a it's a decision that needs to be overturned. Um, but uh, I do think that for the most part. Um, it's it's really rooted in a moment of deep homophobia, uh, and I think I'd like to think that we've moved away from that. So the the SM phobia I think is really amplified through homophobia, and I think you know over 20 years later I think we're in a better place, um, at least in terms of homophobia. Yes, but here's the thing. Um, let, let's think about a sex act where at the moment it's committed, everyone seems to be consenting. Yes. Um, then, then days go by or weeks go by, and for various reasons, one party decides that they were not consenting, and they yeah. take issue, and they go to the law. Then uh, it seems to me your position runs into a bit of trouble, which is that it's all, it's all fine and it's defendable as long as everyone keeps saying, yes, we all consented. But as soon as one person departs from that, and after all, people do change their minds, yeah. stuff happens, then we get into trouble as to what really happened and how we deal with that. Yes. No, absolutely. I mean, that's the, so the Canadian case, um, the RVJA case, I mean, we will never know what actually happened, but that does, there's at least evidence that that's what happened. So, um, a fairly hardcore SM interaction happened, including breath play, and then seven weeks later, one of the partners said um, that she didn't consent to that particular aspect. And, um, and R.V. Brown was cited for its persuasive value, and um, his criminalization was upheld by the Supreme Court of Canada. It's actually, um, it's a very, it's. I mean, I think it's a it's a deeply problematic case. It's a deeply divisive case, um, unfortunately, because because the facts were messy. Um, but you know, at its core, that's that the scenario that you offered is exactly that scenario. Um, and it's the it's sort of the thing that um, people in the SM community talk about is the you know I mean to put it in kind of bluntly, the vindictive ex, right? The vindictive ex um, who knows that they can go to the police and say, I did it. I mean, and they can even say, uh, in some cases, I consented, uh, but my consent isn't valid because of the overarching, uh, uh, you know, law thinks that this activity is so harmful that you're not allowed to consent legally to it. So I do think that that is, is a problem, um, and that's where... I, that's where we need we need the Army Brown case to be overturned, um, and we I mean part of but part of what what needs to happen is uh, is a shift around recognizing submissive agency, um, recognizing people's uh, right to um, 
to engage in activities that other people don't find, you know, desirable or comfortable. Um, and I think that we're we're a bit of ways away from recognizing uh, submissive agency. And particularly if they change their mind, uh, then there's just a whole. Um, ready discourse that they were abused, that they were brainwashed, that they finally saw the light, um, and, and, uh, and then they can be accepted as a complainant or a victim of, a, of an assault. Um, and then we have people criminalized, and in the case of RVJA, uh, yeah, criminalized and uh, labeled as a sex offender. So there's that issue of consent, which remains a thorny one, it seems to me. Um, mm. There's another issue, which is about the notion that, for example, um, watching it or, or or um, indulging in it, it encourages other people to do it in an unhealthy manner. So some people might say, for example, that even though we're, we're talking about it in what I hope is a fairly um, academic manner, that somehow <laughs> we're encouraging it by having a conversation about it. And some people would disapprove of this conversation. And that theme seems to run through S&M, that, that um, even talking about it encourages it in some way, and that therefore talking about it should, should not happen. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts about that? Yeah, I mean, well, what's so funny is that, I mean, I kind of, I think it should happen, um, but I do agree to the extent that, um, I mean, I do think that uh, um, speaking about SM, whether we're doing it uh, from an academic perspective or if we're doing it from an anti-SM perspective, um, I do think that that does unwittingly for the anti-SM people, it unwittingly opens up the possibility and it allows us to contest that perspective and it allows people to just be curious, right? Suddenly you're listening to something that um, you never even thought about and suddenly this sounds exciting even though they're, they're against it. So, I mean, I agree. I just, um, I just disagree um, with whether it's good or bad. I think it's good to talk about it both because I think it's an important topic uh, and it's it's a freedom issue and it's a it's a rights issue and it's a soci sociological issue. Um, but it's also just, um, it's also just some you know it's just kind of exciting to 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 discuss sex and I think it's nice for it's nice that it has that effect that it opens up possibilities. I mean, it's one of the reasons why I mean a lot of people are. Who are more, a lot of more radical people dislike Fifty Shades of Grey because in some ways it has a very assimilationist um, kind of ending. Uh, but in my view, bad representation or problematic representation is always better than, than no representation. Representation opens up space for dialogue and curiosity and, and maybe even exploration. What did you mean by assimilationist? What does that mean? Okay, yeah, so I mean in... It's interesting. The response to, to Fifty Shades of Grey is, is funny because on the one hand we have um, certain kind of anti-SM feminists who really hated the book and thought that it um, supported SM as, as violence and, and that it was about an abusive relationship. But then we also have um, kind of sex radicals um, and people who do kind of critical work in sexuality who said this is ultimately about assimilating kind of this rebellious, transgressive sexuality into uh, a familiar, heterosexual, married uh, relationship. I mean, in the end, sorry, spoiler alert um, for people, but in the end, you know, they get married and they have children and they, they're monogamous. He doesn't see anyone else. So in all these ways, um, this what seems like a transgressive sexuality ends up assimilating into a very familiar, normative um, picture, and I do agree with that criticism, I, but I'd still rather have that than nothing, um, because again, I think it opens up the possibility that people can, can make it uh, something different for themselves. The other interesting thing um, was this notion that being anti-it or trying to stop it actually in the end encourages it, and that comes mm -hmm. back to a very interesting section in your book um, about this film, Not a Love Story. And the controversy that then generated. Tell us a bit about that film and and, and what happened. Sure. Yeah. So this is a really um, a famous film. Um, it's a documentary from the NFB, the National Film Board of Canada, from the early '80s that sought to expose the the world of pornography. Um, and at that time, porn was kind of the fem uh, feminist issue. It was a very important place where people were arguing that representation was really harming the women and creating, um, you know, not just the production of the of the pornography, but just creating this idea that women are objects, um, sex objects. And so we see this documentary where, you know, you know, we have these two people exploring this world. 
um, and they show very hardcore footage. And I, I saw this film uh, when I was an undergraduate student in the early 90s, and I remember being um, very shocked. I was immediately anti-porn. I mean, I don't know what my thoughts were of porn before, but I became very, uh, I was converted by this film. Um, but many people speak of, and, and I'll, I'll say this is true for myself, it was confusing because the images were also um, arousing. I mean, they they are pornographic, and they're, they're explicit, and they're sexy, and they're you know they're taboo, uh, and so you have this confusing thing with your mind, uh, your political mind being like this is terrible, and then your body having this different kind of reaction. Um, and what's ironic is that people who who embrace SM have talked about how at the time, especially, it was a great film to get your hands on because it actually gave you some really hot erotica that was actually hard to get because of censorship, and so we have this one problem where the documentary makers want to show this. This, you know, condemn this footage, uh, but the impact is that people are actually enjoying it. Um, and on the other hand, the Ontario Censor Board um, felt like it was in too explicit to actually show publicly, and so it wasn't given permission to be shown in, in, in commercial places, so you couldn't go to the cinema and watch this documentary. So it actually got censored effectively um, for a brief period of time. Uh, and so this film, I mean, this is part of, the, and it's not just, I mean, not just porn, but anytime we try to condemn something, we run the risk of creating a, a, a more space for it. Um, and and I think that's okay. that's okay. I mean, one, I think it's okay because I'm not NTSM, but even when it's something that we don't like, I think that we have to accept that when we create representation, we we can't own it. We can never own it, and it will take on a life of its own, and people will use it for, for uses um, that we may not have anticipated. You, you've already hinted there was some of the language you've used, and another interesting issue your book explores, which is in the old days, with obscene material or pornography, mm -hmm. um, the hardness of it was linked to how explicit it was, and yet now that's changed. In other words, hardness in terms of hardcore isn't about explicitness, it's about something else. Could you say something about that? Yeah, sure. It, it's an interesting um, evolution of the of the jurisprudence is that we, we are moving towards a place that's you know more liberal, and more liberal meant um, explicit sexuality, showing naked bodies, having, let's say, heterosexual intercourse, uh, started to seem, uh, started to be more accepted um, because it didn't seem like it was harmful. So explicitness stopped being a signifier for hardness under kind of a liberal perspective. The liberal perspective is we won't interfere unless it's harmful. Um, and as we became more liberal in terms of our sexuality and you didn't have to get married to have sex and all of that, well, explicit sex seemed okay. Uh, unfortunately, that gave um, rise to another kind of notion of hardcoreness, which is what is considered harmful, a representation. And under the kind of, especially in the 1980s, the kind of liberal perspective, harmful meant violent. Violent, because this idea that, well, we, if you watch violent sexual interactions, then you're going to imitate it, or you're going to think that it's normal, and you're going to think that it's okay. And so hardcore started to mean SM, unfortunately, or what what some would call violent and what some would call SM, others would just complete completely those two per, those two kinds of genres. Um, and so SM, unfortunately, though it may not have any nudity at all, it may have no overt sexuality. We could just have, you know, someone being whipped or someone, um, you know, in a full leather outfit serving someone else. Um, that started to register as hardcore. And so now, um, when we talk about hardcore. Uh, it's more, it, it moves more into something that involves kind of non-normative, kinky sexuality as opposed to just mere explicitness. Um, now, there's a sense in which when you look at the history of the way sexologists have written about mm -hmm. S&M and this aspect of sexuality, that we see a, a, a distinction between people who are trying to hive it off and say, these people are different, there's something wrong with them, or at least there's something different about them, and another view, maybe a psychoanalytic view, because uh, you mentioned Freud, which mm -hmm. says that this is part of a spectrum, and, and to some extent all of us um, have an aspect of ourselves that's reflected in this area. There's a sense in which 
you know, even very mundane everyday behavior has an element of submission and an element of dominance. Mm-hmm. So, so what are your thoughts about that view? Yeah, it's. I mean, it's that was. I found some of the most enjoyable research was reading the early sexologists. Um, so reading Kraft Ebbing, reading Freud, reading Havelock Ellis, um, and seeing that uh, in a lot of ways they naturalize um, SM and naturalize the desire to to dominate and also to 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 be submissive and the sort of pleasures of that and the eroticism of that um, through. You know, biological discourses through evolutionary discourses. It's you know true, but in, in fact, it's one of the places where we find positive, um, positive representations of SM. So Freud's, um, I find Freud in particular fascinating because he really struggled with what he understood masochism to mean. Um, his earlier writings seem to see masochism as just. Uh, an inversion of sadism. It's it's we're feeling guilty because we have these sadistic desires, and so we repress them, and they transform into masochism. So it wasn't its own primary drive, but um, his later writings start to recognize masochism as something that is part of the fusion of the life and death instinct. Um, so I'm not a psychoanalyst, but uh, I actually find Freud um, really fascinating. So I read quite a bit of it, and his idea that um, there's something kind of natural about masochism um, and what, I mean, it's related to early, um, uh, our relationship to the father, it's related to kind of this incestuous desire for the father and then guilt for having that desire can turn into, uh, um, at that point, pathological and self-destructive masochism where you want to get punished now for having this this, uh, taboo desire. Um, But Freud, Kraft Ebbing, and Ellis all saw um, mild forms of sadism and masochism as entirely natural um, and as part of kind of everyday eroticism. What they all saw as problematic was when that those desires um, detached from kind of a more normative couple relationship when you know pain for the sake of pain either giving it or getting it became the end the end goal as opposed to kind of a pleasurable path towards you know ultimate um, intercourse so you know they, they all have a kind of um, normative conclusion to the story but if we if we look at kind of their writings there's actually a lot of um, a lot of positive representation of SM and also just a, a breaking down um, the line between perversity and, and normativity, showing that in fact the spectrum is is there and that we all have it in us, um, and so long as it's you know st- is contained within a kind of healthy relationship as they understood it, then it's entirely uh, appropriate and natural. So that's uh, I think kind of fun to look at that and kind of excavate the the liberatory messages of some of their earlier writings. So one source of opposition to S&M is the notion it's not normal, it's not healthy, mm-hmm. and you can see um, people writing about, about this in terms of the psychopathology of sex. Mm-hmm. But another, another source of opposition which you um, write very interestingly about in the book uh, comes from feminism, um, the notion that it's, it's not feminist um, and therefore it's a bad thing. Uh, and, and you have a very interesting section of the book where you, I think, entitled Sex Wars. Can you tell us a bit about what these sex wars were? Because it looks as though the devastating blow to the feminists is when there was a group of people called lesbians who were really into this. There's a small group of lesbians, or a large group, I don't know, but lesbians who were into S&M sex. So it be- that became problematic for the feminists. Could you say something about that? Yeah, sure. It's really, I, I found studying the sex wars absolutely fascinating. I mean, in part because I was part of it, at least towards the end. Um, but studying it from the from the inception, which I think I think we, we would say started sometime in the 1970s, um, there were some women who came out as lesbians interested in SM or lesbian SM um, practitioners, and, and they really represented a betrayal to kind of the anti-SM side, a betrayal of what feminism is and what a lesbian is. Um, And they caused a lot of havoc and the feminist community was really torn apart in many places. In England, it's absolutely fascinating to to read about how kind of women's centers um, started to evict groups that were meeting to discuss their interest in SM 
conferences were being um, disrupted because anti-SM people perceived some of the speakers as being too sympathetic to SM or being, you know, SM apologists. Um, so from the anti-SM perspective, this sexuality is patriarchal, it's racist, um, because it, it replicates these kind of oppressive dynamics of dominance and submission. Um, and it's, it's, it's an internalized kind of brainwashed disease. Like a lot of them actually uh, acknowledged having, having desires that could fall under SM. But what we were supposed to do as good feminists was repress them or diagnose them or talk about them or at least condemn them, not flaunt them, not celebrate them or indulge into them. Um, and so there was this really big split um, in the feminist movement uh, on this issue and really what's interesting is that it wasn't just whether SM was acceptable or not, it's whether it was acceptable for a feminist. So it was a, a real battle over what the meaning of feminism was. Um, and from the anti-SM feminist perspective, they were really um, attached to, I think, uh, a kind of sentimentalized version of sexuality where it needed to be um, about affection, it needed to be about love, and it needed to be about kind of vanilla uh, gentleness, right? We are sisters and we're going to have gentle, respectful sex. Um, we're not going to take on these sort of props of oppression. Um, but, you know, from the, from the lesbian SM perspective, that pleasure became more um, more important. Pleasure was prioritized, um, freedom was prioritized, and kind of, I mean, the desire to be able to explore, I mean, the, the questions of sexuality instead of assuming that there was one right way to do it um, and the rest of the way was wrong. And so we see, we see a real split in the movement that I think has receded, the, more or less, SM isn't as much of an issue now, but I think the the aftershocks of this of this war um, continue um, in feminist circles about what the meaning of sexuality is, um, and we have people who self-identify as kind of sex-positive um, feminists um, and or sex-radical feminists, and we have other people who are more interested in thinking about sexuality as a as really a place of oppression um, and a place where we need to kind of weed out vestiges of dominance and submission. The fact that it, it seems to be a peripheral activity and yet mainstream media constantly returns to it and we go back to these films that have been very popular, mainstream Hollywood films, um, and there, there are a few that are analysed in your book and you will also analyse pop videos from Rihanna, for example, mm -hmm. um, suggests that we can't really escape from it and therefore it's not a peripheral interest, it's an, a, a sense in which um, S&M um, uh, activity or culture says something or resonates within within any, anyone at a, at a deep level in the sense that something um, a, a, a deep part of our psyche that um, has some relationship with this. Um, I get a sense that you think that in some sense from the book, but it's not it's not just something that's a peripheral fringe interest. Yeah, I mean, I I do. I will admit it. I do think it's it's something that. Um, I do think it speaks to us people. Um, that's not kind of my political position. Like my political position is, you know, about freedom and about you know the criminal law um, not interfering with you know our own explorations of sexuality or imposing a particular view of sexuality. But kind of on a you know personal level, I it seems to me um, based on my research, but also just based on conversations with people, because um, I love talking about sex and dinner parties and the such, um, that it, that on some level it does, it does speak to people. These um, that power, power, the power play that happens in in SM is draws us, uh, intrigues us, and is and is a part of even everyday uh, sexuality. So like we were talking about earlier, the spectrum. Um, like why is it that, you know, hickeys are something that people enjoy? Why is it that, you know, even, even missionary position sex, right, the most normative kind of sex still on some level has, you know, one person on top, right, literally, and and I think that that can translate into a kind of dynamic that, that can be erotic for for the people involved. Um, 
so I think that SM is a part of, can be a part of, I mean, I wouldn't oppose it on someone who said it wasn't, but I feel like it's a part of a lot of people's sexuality, but that we won't necessarily have to recognize it um, as such um, or, or identify with the subculture. But also what's interesting is that it also um, connotes disgust to a lot of people. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of people for whom who are curious about it, or a lot of people who might be interested in getting into it. But for a lot of people, it's disgusting, mm -hmm. and obscene, and repellent. And so there's something about that which also, in a funny kind of way, makes it even more exciting. Yeah, I think disgust is such an interesting um, emotion, and really, uh, I, I draw on a lot of really um, incisive. Uh, scholars of disgust, so William Miller is one of them who who talks about the kind of ambivalence of disgust that it can be. Uh, I mean, one, it can be just a defense mechanism, right? We feel this intense disgust as a way to protect ourselves from how how drawn we are to a particular activity. Um, uh, disgust, also, I'm really citing Miller here, is also I think uh, is a um, is a defense mechanism to sh prove that we're not interested in something. Um, and we see this in the R.V. Brown case, uh, which was um, divided three to two. So the dissenting judges um, who you know, found that the, the accused shouldn't have been criminalized still went out of their way to talk about how disgusted they were by these SM activities. And so I think that disgust, our utterances of disgust are a way to communicate to the people around us I'm not that pervert. I might be studying it. I might be um, adjudicating a case about it, but I just want you to know that that's not me. And so I think it, it, it serves these interesting uh, rhetorical functions. Um, and I found that with academic writers, too, actually, this one um, anti-SM feminist uh, academic spends the first part of her um, article talking about how disgusted she was at looking at when she was researching SM. Um, so why, you know, why is she sharing that with us? But on some level, she wants us, I think, to know that she's not into it. There's no prurient interest that she has, um, and I think it gives some kind of moral strength to our rational position when we are against something and we're disgusted by it. It means we feel it on a deep, visceral level. And I think that that's supposed to have um, you know, more persuasive value. And I mean, I, I am also disgusted by other things, you know, other kinds of injustices, let's say. Um, and so I, I understand that disgust is, is something, it means we feel something deeply. Um, and, and we're communicating that to our, uh, whoever's listening to us. But we have to have respect for people who are disgusted by stuff. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. I you mean, sound reluctant to accept that. <laughs> well, I, I, um, I mean, I d definitely think we need to respect our emotions and be true to them, and and all of that. But it's when people seem to use disgust as. Um, proof of the badness. If I'm disgusted, then it must mean that it's bad. That's where I. Uh, that's my hesitation. So I do think it's interesting to think about who's disgusted and why we're disgusted. Um, and I don't think people should feel bad about feeling disgust. Um, but I do. I don't think that disgust is is proof of badness. And I would also say let's say someone who feels disgust for SM or particular SM practices. I mean, it may be a, a moment, a time to to reflect on. Maybe there are other things happening besides, you know, objection. Maybe there is some kind of repressed um, curiosity, at least, about what about what's happening in those activities. One of the interesting things I think um, the book is about, um, and we're running out of time, so I'm going to probably end uh, very shortly with a very unfair question to you, okay. which is that um, one of the things that struck me about people who um, are comfortable with S and M and are really into it. Is they've kind of worked out for themselves what sex is for, mm. and or, or for them at any rate. Mm. Um, and I do think that's a, in a way a central enigma posed by your book, which is what is sex for? There was a point in the in the historical past when it was clear what sex was for, maybe in terms of procreation, but it was always actually a question as to what is sex for. Um, and there is a sense in which people who have fetishes or or things that are regarded as fringe aspects, or or things that disgust other people or frowned upon, in a in a in a funny kind of way, they're kind of worked out in a much better sense than maybe the mainstream uh, mm -hmm. culture. What sex is for for them? What are your thoughts about this question? What is sex for? Yeah, it's a great it's a great question because I think a lot of times when um, 
when we celebrate a, a sexual practice or when we condemn a sexual practice, there's a, an underlying assumption of what sex is for. Um, so in one of the DSM editions, I think the DSM-4, there's a justification, well, why do they have, you know, particular sexuality cordoned off as paraphilias that, you know, may require intervention, and it says, well, sexuality that interferes with reciprocal affectionate relations, um, and of course the assumption there is that sex should be reciprocal, it should be affectionate. Um, so I think part of the problem with the anti-SM stuff is an assumption that sex should have particular kinds of goals. I mean, so conservatively, you know, like you said, it was to it was to have children. Um, you know, more liberally, it's to it's to bond with your partner or, or whatever. Um, kind of more, you know, hedonistically, um, it, it can just be for pleasure. And I think that despite how far we've gone. Um, the idea of sex, you know, for pleasure's sake, meaning, it, you know, it can be with a total stranger, it can be with a sex worker, it can be in a group setting, um, you know, we, we still aren't comfortable, the mainstream still isn't really comfortable with thinking about s sexual pleasure as a good in and of itself. Um, and so, I mean, I, I think for, for SM practitioners, I think because, um, because there's SM marginalization, there's a there's a need to think through like, well, you know, why why am I doing this? And so for some, it's about catharsis, it's about working through trauma, you know, it's about pleasure, it's about connection, it's about. But but I think that when you're when you're put kind of on the margins, you're you can be more thoughtful. I mean, I think this is true also for um, uh, queer people and people in same-sex relationships. Um, there's more thought about what it means to to do this, whereas heterosexuality is just you know it's the norm, so you don't we don't have to think kind of critically about what heterosexuality means. Um, and the nice thing about that is that this sort of marginalization, I think helps us to be more conscious about what we choose. And so one of the things that you know people say about SM, which is so great, is that you talk to your partner about what you want. And, and there are ways of stopping it that don't hurt anyone's feelings or embarrass anyone if things are going in a way that you don't like when you use a safe word, for example. And so SM practitioners um, can be, not always, um, but can be more thoughtful and more um, explicit about what they want from a sexual interaction um, and what to do if it's going off course then you know just if you you're having sex with your your partner or you're you're having sex for the first time with someone you've been dating there's an assumption that it's also natural and it's all going to happen the way it's supposed to and you don't need to talk about it and um, and I think that that's you know that's unfortunate because talking about it uh, you know can help you get to a place of, of more pleasure and it can also avoid places of of you know unhappiness or discomfort or you know even assault. Um, so in the sense of what sex is for, I think for people who've been marginalized because of their sexuality, I think that uh, the advantage has been that we we've talked about it more, and I think that's that's a good thing. I guess that's my that's my closing that talking about sex is is a good thing. But one final final question then. Yes, um, okay. uh, there, there's a sense in which you, you allude to the fact that the way popular culture handles SM does it a disservice. And I want to pick on two examples in the okay. book. Um, the pop video that Rihanna um, famously portrayed, mm -hmm. some SM um, motifs or, 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 or activity, and the film Pulp Fiction. Um, it yes. would be dangerous to, to, um, to uh, get a sense of what SM is about from, from these examples, wouldn't it? What are your yeah. thoughts? I mean, yeah, so Pulp Fiction. Um, the film. Yeah, the film. Yeah, that's what we're talking about, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. the film. Um, yes, that representation, um, and I, I would say most um, representations of male gay SM, uh, yeah, if we took that to be the example of what it is, then we would have a very negative view. It would be associated. Perhaps you could describe the scene, though. Oh, yeah, great. Who? <laughs> <laughs> my God, go out and see the film. Um, but, okay. Just so you know, just so you're prepared. Um, yeah, so in, in that film, which is really, I mean, it's a very enjoyable film, but we have this one scene where these two um, men uh, kidnap these other two men and um, end up 
well, one of them does end up getting sexually assaulted, but the two assaulters are also sadomasochists who keep a submissive on hand, and they refer to him as the gimp. Um, so the famous scene is Bring Out the Gimp, where they bring out this submissive who's um, dressed in full leather gear, including a leather hood, um, who's, you know, chained to, uh, has his collar has a chain to it. And um, they tell the gimp to watch one man while they sexually assault the other. So we get a sense that these men are on some level connected to uh, an SM sexual subculture, a gay SM sexual subculture. Um, and they are also violent rapists. And so that's, um, you know, that's an extremely uh, problematic representation, particularly because we just don't have other representations of um, gay SM practitioners. We have very few of people who do SM at all, um, but it's, you know, very even less, almost none of people who are gay who do SM. And that's why that representation is so unfortunate. Um, is not because in and of itself uh, it's bad, because obviously there's a spectrum of people out there, and there's including um, people who do SM and, and commit sexual assault. But when the context of our our what's out there. Um, it's, it, it really stands out as a really negative representation. Um, and so that's, that's um, hopefully you know, changing the more representation of SM we have and the more representation of gay SM we have. Hopefully that will you know, start to fade and just be one of many different kinds. Uh, but at the, at the time, and I, I'd say continuing today, um, it's still a really terrible uh, representation um, that you know, conflates, in my view, some homophobia with SM phobia. What about Rihanna's pop video? Yeah, so Rihanna's, I, I really think it's an it's a important intervention. It's a great video for um, really what I love most about um, people who work with SM representation, which is taking all the accusations, all the anti-SM accusations, and just shoving your face into it. Um, and so in her video, we see her. Um, engaging in multiple different kinds of SM uh, scenarios. We see her being a dominant with a, a kind of man acting like her dog, but we also see her tied up like she's a bratty little baby. Um, but we also see her interaction with the press. Um, and on the one hand, it seems like the press is dominating her in, a, in an oppressive way. They've got her kind of tied up in saran wrap and they're writing notes about her, about how she has daddy issues and she's, um, she's a pathologized subject. Um, but on the other hand, then we see the press um, as the submissives, and they have ball gags in their mouths, and she's now dominating them. Um, so she takes on, I think, uh, and the lyrics of the song also take on um, anti-SM perspectives, you know, that she, you know, you're calling me bad, but I love being bad, right? The sort of pleasure of rebellion, the pleasure of taking on an insult and turning it into kind of a badge of honor. Um, but I also think that the video shows how the press and the people who fawn over her but then write these sort of um, scathing articles about how, um, how uh, disturbed she must be to be engaging in the kinds of relationships and sexuality that she is, she shows that they are also caught up in a kind of dominant and submissive dynamic with her. Um, and in that way, I think she de-exceptionalizes sadomasochism, and I think that's a really uh, important intervention is to show um, how the pleasures that people get out of dominance and submission, not just sexually, but in our everyday interactions, um, and to show that you know there's the, the line between kind of sex and other kinds of uh, dominant submission uh, activities are is 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 not uh, a strong line that we can cross those lines. And just in case there's anyone on the planet who doesn't know which which Rihanna song and video we're talking about, the title of it is. It's SM. Yeah. <laughs> nice okay. and simple. Yeah. Khan, thank you very much indeed. Oh, thank you so much. It was such a pleasure uh, talking with you. Thank you. <laughs>